Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. We invite you to open your Bible to the letter of Galatians. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, so to the end of the chapter. So Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. So, let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this testimony. We ask that it would have full effect in each one of our hearts. We need it. Each one of us needs it. Uh, There may be one or two or more in the room this morning who do not know you. They are lost. They're in the dark. And we ask that you would shed your light abroad in their hearts and that they would see the Lord Jesus Christ as the great Savior that he is. And I pray for each one of us who have believed, who have been brought by grace to believe in Christ, that we would have our faith in the gospel 
all the more strengthened, and that we also would realize uh, the great purpose that you have given to us uh, to go out into the world and to make much of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, um, I wonder uh, what should be forcible enough uh, to win a serious hearing from you of the Christian gospel. Or if you're a soul uh, that's been sort of mired in a knockoff of God's gospel, uh, what could be strong enough to pull you, to pull on you towards the truth? Uh, that we have in that gospel. Or say you're a doubting Christian, a doubting Christian. What would be sight enough to secure a Thomas like you in the truth of the gospel? Or what if you're a a younger believer, a new believer? Uh, The roots there, they're real and they're still green, right? But but they're new and they're slight, they're small. Uh, Where can you run for a growing clarity and stability in the good news that has saved you from your sins? Or, what if, if you don't say so yourself, you're a very mature Christian? You're a very mature Christian. and so mature that you've maybe forgotten what it is to be a child of the King by grace alone. What, we can pray, has the power against our self-righteous tendencies to then soften and warm our love again for Jesus and to warm our love again for sinners, even great sinners, that have harmed us very greatly? Or, what if you really are as sound a saint as there is on earth? What inherently holds the spiritual nutrition to help keep you right there, and to continue to develop you as well? I think in answer to all of that, the story of Paul's conversion certainly cannot hurt, okay? Now, there's a very useful, I think generationally useful pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, and Paul's testimony is actually part of his own testimony. Now, he grew up in a country church in Kentucky, I believe it is. He lived a time in what he would call intellectual agnosticism. But he had two pesky bugs in his non-Christian system. Uh, he could not shake off the, the life of the persecuted church. That made no sense to him uh, they're being martyred left and right, and yet here we are today. They're still, we're still here, right? You're being persecuted, and yet the church continues. And he couldn't make sense of that either in the New Testament or in history. That's one thing. He also could not shake the reality that is the Apostle Paul. He could not account for what Paul became from what Paul was. And as both realities point to another great reality... Uh, this particular pastor, he became convinced the only rationale, the only explanation is that Jesus is really risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead, which is actually God's testimony, the resurrection, that Jesus is Savior enough for everyone who would believe in Him. And so Paul's testimony is a defense of the gospel he preaches. His testimony is a gift of God to you and me to solidify our souls in the grace of God's one gospel. Not man's gospel, the grace of God's one gospel. So we want to start this morning with Paul's claim in verses 11 and 12 concerning the source of the gospel that he preached. 
Paul wants it to be clear for the Galatians, and he cannot be clearer right out of the gate. He wants them to know that the gospel he preached was not man's gospel. That was the charge that was being levied against him. Paul is setting aside circumcision. He's setting aside uh, the law of God. He's setting aside Moses. You don't have to do in order to live. The gospel Paul preaches seems to cancel a whole lot of God's word. Salvation by grace alone is man's gospel. They're charging that against Paul. Salvation by grace alone is man's gospel. It's not God's gospel. That's the argument. God's gospel pulls together faith in Jesus plus obedience to Moses. You don't have that. You are not fully justified before God. Jesus is a a part or He's a piece of the equation of salvation, but He's not all of it. To be really accepted by God, in short, you have to abide by the rules. You have to abide by the rules to make up for whatever the lack there is in the cross of Christ. So Messiah, they're saying, would never abandon Moses. And any gospel preaching otherwise is not the gospel of God. So you can feel the appeal in what they're saying there. Thing is, it's not what Paul's preaching. <laughs> uh, there's a difference between abandoning Moses and fulfilling Moses. Okay? And we'll leave that to future sermons in Galatians. Uh, here, however, Paul's still giving defense that the gospel he preaches is not man's gospel. Whatever they argue, it's not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. And as he moves in the direction of his testimony then, we come to verse 12. And he lets us know there that his coming to understand God's gospel is rather unique. You and I and most others uh, came to hear and understand and believe and then communicate, articulate the gospel through our interaction with other human beings, I think. Man was the medium. Your parents taught it to you. Uh, You heard it in a sermon. Uh, Someone prayed it, like Corey just did, like Jonathan did a week ago. Prayed the gospel, you heard it. Maybe you heard it in a song that we've sung before. Uh, You ran into Corey and Megan Jenkins on campus, and they shared the gospel with you, and you came to faith in Christ, praise God. Uh, You came across it on YouTube. Someone sent you a John Piper article, whatever it is, okay? And hearing the gospel, you believed. And then, in the best case, you joined a gospel-saturated church where your faith was taught and strengthened according to the Scriptures. Not so with Paul, however. He says, in our passage, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it by any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, which is glorious at many levels. For one, Paul apparently has Jesus in a different category than any man. He's not just any man, in other words. In receiving the gospel directly from Jesus, Paul received it 
from a man who had been raised from the dead, number one, and also in receiving it from Jesus, he had received it from the God-man. There's a little bit of a hint here at the deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. So he received it through the risen God-man. And that revelation seems to have included two things. The gospel instruction of Jesus. Rooted in this undeniable manifestation of Jesus. So, Jesus revealed the truth of the gospel to Paul, and he did this personally in his nail-scarred resurrection glory. Remember, Paul had only known Jesus as this crucified and buried imposter of a man. So, to suddenly see Jesus such that Paul is going to reflexively, like you can't help it, call the one that he had spent a lifetime hating, Lord. Who is it? Lord? Was direct confirmation of the message that Jesus had given him to preach. Uh, Jesus did not give it to Paul as he gave it to Peter, like through the course of his earthly life. He gave it to Paul when the only explanation for it was that he was, in fact, the risen Christ of God. With grace to save a sinner like Paul. And as that's true, any argument against Paul's gospel should be put to flight. The source of the gospel Paul preached was none other than God through Jesus, the risen Christ. Is that good enough? I don't know. You tell me. Like, is that good enough? Is that a trustworthy source, do you think? Yes. You know me. I like to quote great saints all the time in sermons. And the reason I do that is because I think, for the most part, you can take their word to the bank. Or, you do me one better, and you start quoting the Bible at me, which is glorious. Why do you do that? Well, Because it's the very Word of God. Paul received the gospel straight from the lips of the God who cannot lie through the incarnate Word who speaks nothing but the truth. Think about that. That's his source. Fairly credible, I would say. The gospel Paul preaches is God's gospel, which is good for us to know as we move forward in Galatians and Paul begins to unpack that gospel for us. It's the gospel of God. And so to verify it further, And God willing, put all to bed with the utmost confidence. Paul shares his testimony with us. He gives us his story here. He gives us the story in defense of the gospel he preached, which is the rest of our passage. Okay? So, in verse 13 then, he begins by telling us why it is absolutely impossible that his gospel would be anything other than God's gospel. There was a time when Paul was the farthest thing from a Christian. And to simply say that he was Jewish would have been probably insulting to him. He was entrenched in Judaism 
And not just as like a common man might be, you know, you wake up on Sabbath and you go to the synagogue and all this kind of thing. No, Paul was a Pharisee. And he would say he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, okay? And though that carries like a sore reputation, we hear Pharisee, we automatically think negative. It carries kind of a sore reputation with us today. In Paul's day, here's what that meant. It meant that Paul was a Bible-memorizing, theological conservative with separatist or holy convictions, belief or faith in a Messiah, and surprise, surprise, loyalty to the law of Moses as a means of enticing the day of God and His reward. You like that guy? Sounds okay to me. In a first century Jewish setting, Paul the Pharisee is not a despised person. He's a venerated person. He's in great measure just what these Judaizing opponents would have respected. Paul's believed a lot of what they want the Galatians to believe. (laughs) But Paul wasn't just an academic. His Phariseeism wasn't all theoretical. It wasn't all in the brain, no. Paul believed in the traditions of his Pharisaical fathers with every fiber of his being. As he says in verse 14, he was so extremely zealous for those traditions that he was advancing up the ranks even beyond those of his own age, his peers. He was at the top of the class. And why was he at the top of the class? Was he at the top of the class for academic purposes? Not just academic purposes. Why then? He was at the top of the class because of experience in the field. Paul was climbing the ladder of Judaism by tearing down what he could of Christianity. Here's how he puts it. I persecuted the church of God violently. And I tried... (laughs) He did not succeed. I tried to destroy it. There's so much to see in all that. To be sure, it is only in hindsight that Paul understands believers in Jesus to be the people, the assembly, the church of the God he thought he served. Okay? So prior to his conversion, Paul believed even Jewish, ethnically Jewish Christians to be this sort of loathsome, despicable virus within a purer Judaism that needed burning out. Get that virus out of here. It needed killing. They were not God's people. How could they be? They were worshiping a crucified man. Sometimes as Christians, we just forget how crazy the gospel is. They were worshiping a crucified man that by that fact stood ever accursed and condemned by God. Jesus was not the Christ. And Christians, as they came to be called, were a disease that then needed to be expediently eradicated if Israel was to be blessed. And Paul lived to see to that. He grabbed those reins. Get them out of here. Going to destroy them. 
He grabbed those reins with all zeal. And in that, we're to learn something very important. We know nothing as God would have us until we know Jesus as God would have us. Friends, listen. As a lost man, Paul read his Bible religiously. Paul, as a lost man, lived by the law. In fact, in Philippians 3, he says he was blameless under the law. Paul, as a lost man, had zeal for God. As a lost man, he had spiritual clout in the community. He was venerated as a righteous man. Do you remember the disciples of Jesus? When Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, and Jesus' own disciples were like, how is that even possible? They're the most righteous. Well, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was a ferocious servant of the Lord. And had it all ended there for Paul... Paul would have ended in hell. If you were to summarize verses 13 to 14 from a Jewish perspective, would it be this? Would it be that right there is the life of the chief of sinners? I don't think so. But that is exactly how Paul would come to set it off in 1 Timothy 1.15. In hindsight, Paul would see and say that all he used to hold as earning him a place with God forever was rubbish to be forfeited as loss if only to gain Jesus and be found in Him. But in his former life, none of that was in view. And so he's in the Bible, he's distinct from the world, he's honoring traditions, he's believing in a Messiah, he's serving God with all his might, he's fighting for the truth as he thought he was. In all that, Paul lived the most sinful life that anyone will ever live, is what he says. In truth, as he would come to discover, he was actually at war with God. He was fighting the very Christ that the Bible taught and God had given as all-sufficient Savior of His people. So, Paul did not receive the gospel from any man. It's doubtful that you could have sat down with Paul and evangelized him without putting your life on the line. So, that he now preaches this gospel of Jesus Christ from one place 
to another and at the cost of his own life has but one explanation. Nothing was converting Paul to Jesus except the grace of God. How did you receive the gospel, Paul? How did you come to believe what you believe and preach? Just this. In the heat of my backward rebellion and sin, God, with a perfect view of it all, yet applied His sovereign grace to me. What glory, I mean like heavenly glory, is in that first word of verse 15. But. That word alerts us to the collision of God's eternal grace and our greatest need. However ignorant we are of it and undeserving of it we are, in ourselves. Collision, but. So see first how Paul locates his conversion in a choice God made before Paul was ever born. Or as he'll later amplify in Romans chapter 9, before he had done either good or bad. Knowing what Paul would be both with and without him, God yet set this individual man apart without regard to either good or bad that he would do. He chose Paul to the everlasting glory, not of Paul, but to the everlasting glory of His free grace. That's the next thing to notice is to notice what Paul notices. How streaming out of this eternal choice, this election conditioned in no way on the content of Paul's life comes a personal call, God to Paul, God to the individual, by His what? Grace. So chosen in grace, called by grace. And as a week ago, this call is the call that overcomes, this is what's so remarkable about it, it overcomes all resistance. All resistance. Even the sort of resistance that you would see in the chief of sinners, like Paul. So I'll tell you, just this week I had an ear infection. And all I could hear was noise that was internal to me. Right? Like kind of in a fishbowl. I couldn't hear anything outside my right ear. It didn't matter what I did. It was just all muffled. And to borrow from Paul, in what I'm saying to you, before God, I do not lie. I was at this point in my sermon preparation, and I'm sitting on God's effectual call. No lie. I'm sitting on God's effectual call, and without doing a single thing, all of a sudden, what happened? My ear went, it popped. And I was enabled to hear. 
crazy. And I was like, man, I received a new ear. And God was like, use that in the sermon. And I was like, okay. (laughs) This call is God's giving an ear that hears to hearts that never wanted to hear before. It's that call invested in the blood of Christ that grabs our attention such that it can never be lost because, if I can shift the image now, it turns our eyes upon Jesus. So, again, just so we don't lose sight of it, we're talking about Paul's conversion. Conversion. You want to know what conversion is? Is eternal grace in application. It's God's unconditional choice, divinely and personally applied to an individual. There was a win, not W-I-N-W-H-E-N, there was a win to free and sovereign mercy. But when, you see that? And at its peak, when the win is happening, Front and center is God's revelation of His Son to our sinful souls. And how I love that it says it was God's pleasure to do this. God does not begrudge to reveal His Son to souls. It was with a truly divine smile of enjoyment that the Father applied His love to us in a call that turns the eyes of our soul to the loveliest sight the sinner can ever see, and that is the Son in all of His beauty. It's like the enjoyment of a parent in seeing a dearly beloved child open a long-planned, life-changing gift only times infinity and eternity. So in that sight of the Son, everything changes. You see nothing else the same again. In this revelation of Christ, all things come to light as they truly are. That's why Paul and many others can be in the Bible and be doing all kinds of religious things and so on and so forth, and yet in it all still be in the dark night of sinful nature because their souls have not seen God's Son like this. He'd not seen the truth as it is in Jesus. But once he did, and once you and I do, divine light is shed abroad in our hearts. And we come to see so many things in His light that we never saw before. We see our sins. And we see their sinfulness. We come to terms with our guilt and call God just to condemn us. We see that 
All our lives we've been led this way and that way, but always astray. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is the way. We deny that our righteousness is any righteousness at all. Just filthy rags. It's actually a sin. (laughs) Because we've trusted in it instead of Christ. We look upon our mere religious ritualism as a grace deterrent. We see our zeal was misguided and misplaced, and if we had continued in it, we would have gone headlong into hell. We see that the way we viewed the world was in opposition to God indeed. What we see is that we'd never known God at all until, and what a blessed until, God took the initiative to reveal His Son to us. And then, in that moment, you're Christian, you go back to it, return to it time and time and time again, how lovely was the gospel of grace. When you saw the Son, (laughs) how consoling was the cross of Christ. In His light, How awe-striking was that flood of peace that overwhelmed your conscience. You have everlasting peace with the living God. How outstanding was it to feel for the first time in your souls. And then on and on and over and over again, it is well now with my soul because my sin has been nailed to the cross. It has been dealt with, not in part, but the whole of it. When you see God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your eternal Savior, you see there is no beauty as the beauty of Christ. You see there is no glory like the glory of grace. You see there is no news so good as the news of the gospel. You see that there is no attachment so strong that he can be resisted still and denied. All the world in that moment could be lost thrown to the garbage if only Christ be gained. No, here. Here. When God reveals His Son to the soul, there is only God be merciful to me, the sinner. There is only faith in Jesus. There is only a new creation. There is only the irreversible making of what we call a Christian. Now, I will say, Paul's conversion was in part, it was in part unique. The Son was not only revealed in him, but to him. And so perhaps you say, man, wouldn't that be a story to have? It'd be so nice to get the risen Christ appeared to me. Right? Wouldn't it be nice to have a story like that to tell? In another vein, though, don't you have a story like that to tell? God may not have revealed his son to you as he did to the Apostle Paul, but as you are a Christian, has he not chosen to call? your soul's attention to the revelation of His Son 
within you? He absolutely has. And that is why you love Jesus. That's why you aren't exactly anymore what you always used to be. That's why your former life is now your former life. It's because through the preaching of the gospel of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God, who in the beginning of the world said, let light shine out of darkness and light shone out of darkness, spoke the very same words with regard to your heart. Let there be light. And there was. And you saw Jesus. He called you by His grace. And you turned. To see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here you are, whatever else you were, a Christian. One nanosecond prior to this sight, Paul was a self-righteous, Jesus-hating, church-persecuting, Christian-murdering Pharisee. One nanosecond Later, seeing Jesus like this, he was a knowing sinner, a converted man, an heir of grace. He was the Apostle Paul. That is the power of the gospel of God's all-sufficient grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you doubt it? Do you doubt what Paul says in Romans 1.16? That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes? That he would know. And when you come to faith in Christ, when you're converted, uh, it's not without purpose, beyond conversion, which drives us into our final verses. Try to sum up some things here for us. Paul's point is that the only explanation for his believing and preaching what he does is the grace of a direct and converting encounter with the risen Christ of God. That's what he's saying. He is Paul because of Jesus. And his preaching is because of Jesus. Paul was saved to preach the message Jesus directly gave him. And once he had, Paul tells us a lot of things that I'm going to now abbreviate on our way to their significance to the point. So Paul says, God converted him, he saw Jesus, and that he didn't do what we would normally suggest, which is that you would then seek out a church or a pastor, or this time the apostles, (laughs) to get counsel Uh, gospel discipleship. He doesn't do that. He did not go up, verse 17, to Jerusalem. For three years, he says, nothing was added by human discipleship to what God had revealed to Paul in his son. Nothing was added. He went straight away into Arabia and then to Damascus, where that glorious scene occurred, to preach the gospel as commissioned by Jesus Himself. And all His opponents said, Aha! 
That explains it. Paul's preaching this law-free gospel because he never went to Jerusalem to receive requisite instruction. He had this mysterious encounter with God knows who, and then took to preaching, how dare he, without attending seminary in Judea. Okay, so, verse 18, and on. After three years, he does go up to Jerusalem. And he spends time with Peter and James for a couple weeks. And then off he goes again to preach the gospel in Syria and Cilicia. Didn't even stop, give a courtesy visit to the Judean churches. Off he goes to the nations again. And yet, those Judean churches were praising God for the report they heard. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And here's why this is a goldmine of support of the gospel Paul preached. The false teachers said Paul is a people pleaser because the gospel he preaches is Moses eclipsing. It's all for likes with non-Jewish people. And he's all wrong. If he'd have gone up to Jerusalem, they surely would have set him straight. Wrong. What God gave Paul, the saints in Jerusalem confirmed. As the saints in Galatia also should. Okay? Do you think that Paul and Peter and James shared a nice cup of tea and just talked about the weather for 15 days? No. Uh, they talk gospel. They talk Jesus. And what came out of it was that the gospel Paul preached for the three years prior among the nations, among Gentiles, was exactly the same gospel preached by Peter and James in Jerusalem. In fact, we're going to see it next week, in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, those guys added absolutely nothing to me. So just think on it. One of Jesus' very best friends, Peter, and James, the Lord's brother, his half-brother, one who was most intimate with Jesus' earthly ministry as a disciple, and one who only became so after also seeing his brother, his own brother, raised from the dead. One and the other, both leaders in the churches of Judea. They only confirmed the gospel Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles like the Galatians. So it turns out, Jesus is a pretty good teacher of the gospel. He taught it to Paul well enough. And the force of that is that in opposing Paul's gospel, these opponents in Galatia were opposing, not just Paul, but Peter. 
and James and Jesus and God. But there's more. When then Paul's visit to Jerusalem might have caused a panic, he used to persecute the churches. Paul is in Jerusalem. Hide. When his visit to Jerusalem might have caused a panic, it instead drew out the praise of churches faithful to Jesus in that area. And I find that wildly remarkable. It implies, probably, that Peter and James were sold. Paul is a Christian. Paul is one of us. God has saved even that man. So that is now being circulated. He's preaching. <laughs> He's preaching the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. And you and I, let's not be numb to this. These Jewish churches who had lived in fear of Paul, listen now, who had probably lost loved ones either to prison and perhaps to the grave because of Paul. had no apparent pause at this report. They, I imagine Paul wrote with tears in his eyes, they glorified God because of me. These churches were so rich in grace that they received even Paul and rejoiced in God's grace towards him. That is remarkable. So whether it was Peter or James or churches with understandable reasons for being unforgiving and suspicious of Paul, they yet all confirmed that Paul, against all odds, was a Christian and that far from preaching man's gospel, he was preaching the divine gospel of Christ crucified and raised for the full-on justification of all who believe in Christ. So friend, won't you believe this morning in Christ? Don't try and shake Paul. Let his testimony serve the truth with you that Jesus is alive. And that being alive, there's a sermon. That in his death, he really did pay it all. Even enough for the chief of sinners to have his sins forgiven as an example to you of God's amazing and saving grace. So let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. Again, all the fitness that He requires is that you feel your need of Him. Feel your need of Him this morning. Run to Jesus 
and he will save you from your sins. Beloved, won't our souls right now just be warmed? Won't they just be warmed by this fact that our faith in Jesus is actually a saving faith. That the grace of God in the person and work of Christ really has fully and forever justified us. Do you return to that from day to day? You are saved. Can you sense that afresh today? That the gospel we've believed and has proven to be the power of God to us is really God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. God has revealed His Son to you and it's changed us. It's real. Jesus does save sinners. So, why not go out today and every day into the world and tell others about it? Why not go out like the Apostle Paul with that distinct purpose? Share your testimony. Share the gospel. Share Jesus. He is Savior enough. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do ask now that our hearts would be able, would be enabled to feel again the power of grace, the power of the gospel. We come to the throne of mercy, the throne of grace, asking for any unconverted person here this morning that you would personally apply saving grace to them right now. And, O oh Lord, again, that you would strengthen your people and make us bold with the gospel, which is the gospel of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.